Welcome to the East Bay's best podcast, The Capstone Conversation. This is a show that interviews political, government, and community leaders in Alameda, Contra Costa, and Solano counties. We look at what is going on in your city, how are we developing things economically, and where are we going from here? I'm your host, Jared Ash. Episode of the Capstone Conversation. I am your host, Jared Ash. I am joined by Zach Clark from the Home More Project. He is an awesome young man who is helping in the Bay Area our homeless community by being innovative and passionate about providing them with essential resources that can make everybody's lives better. So, Zach, welcome to today's episode. Please introduce yourself. Tell us your background and a little bit more about Home More. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, so my name is Zach Clark. I'm the founder and executive director of the Home More Project. My backstory getting into this work is a little bit interesting. In 2019, I decided to move across the country from Atlanta, Georgia, and attended the University of San Francisco studying marketing and international business. I thought that my path was going to be a traditional kind of corporate career in the Bay Area. And during COVID, I was living in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which for those who aren't aware, has anywhere from 30 to 40% of the homeless population in San Francisco. And so May of 2020 is when I moved in. And that was a pretty interesting time to be in San Francisco. Everything was closed. There were no tourists. A lot of the people working in the city were leaving. And so really the only people that I connected with were those that were experiencing homelessness. And I lived on the streets of O'Farrell and and Jones, and my entire street was just nothing but tents. And so it was through that period of lockdowns and nothing going on that I started to really reflect on what is it that I want to do for the rest of my life and you know shifted my focus away from marketing and decided to to start uh, the home more project and so 2020 was kind of more of just me contemplating is this something i really want to invest my time in 2021 is when i went all in on top of my studies and formed our board our internship program and then began developing what is our most notable program right now, which is our makeshift traveler backpack. So let's dive right into what the makeshift backpack is and how that helps people. Definitely. Yeah. So I guess a a little backstory of how we got into developing a product. Initially, we started with a conceptual idea of a transitional housing program. And so we wrote up the plans for that. We were ready to dive in. And then we started running the numbers of what that program would cost to launch. And looking at my personal bank account, the organization's bank account, kind of had a reality check that, okay, we're not going to raise a million dollars to do this. And so that's when we took a step back and we decided to develop a product. So one of the guiding statistics uh, that I learned, both through studies from like UCF, UCSF, as well as just observing and talking to people on the streets, is that most people have cell phones. 
to connect with loved ones, access critical services, but most of them didn't have a place to charge. And I met people that were spending $5 a day at, at Starbucks just to charge their phone to contact a spouse or people that were uh, risking getting electrocuted by like bus stop lights just to charge their phone. And so that was kind of a guiding principle for the development of our pack. And so we spent 18 months from about June, well, really about February 2021 until we launched October 1st, 2022, developing, prototyping, and fundraising about 50,000 to make the first 500 packs. So the makeshift traveler is a hard shell backpack that's made from polyethylene recycled water bottles. So the shell is, is very durable. We've dropped it from like six stories high, not even a dent. <laughs> so it's, it's very durable. It has a solar panel at the top of the pack. So it collects sun. There's a small battery inside that can charge about two to three cell phones. And then there's a USB port external of the pack where people can plug in. In addition, we also include other basic necessities like a sleeping bag, a radio, a flashlight, a rain jacket. We try to include things that are more than just one-time use and that can be sustainable until uh, people receive housing. So I think a keynote there is the cell phone operation. And I want to dive into that because... If you are homeless and you are benefiting from services, whether it's food stamps or healthcare related, any sort of government subsidy, nonprofit, soup kitchen, information is found via the internet now. Applications are done via the internet, especially in the age of COVID, when many government offices, the lines were just shut down. Um, while staff was at home and still haven't returned to full-time occupancy. And so for those of us who have a home, an apartment, whatever it is, car chargers, we get the benefit of doing that and not even thinking about that. Or we have our home computer, we have free Wi-Fi. And I think that's really shows you the need that's out there that you discovered and people need the, the charging capacity. And I was actually up in North Solano for the day the other day, and I was in a rental car because I had a, a car break down. The, and I ran out of cell phone and I used the map feature on there and it's a brand new phone, but the battery just died. And so I was begging people at an event I was at, who has a cell phone charger? Who has a cell phone charger? I need to go, how do I get back to the highway if I don't know without my cell phone? And I really give you credit for figuring that out as something that's just simple and that they don't have an easy solution to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's something that when I when presenting the idea or sharing the work that we do with people that maybe aren't as familiar with the homeless population or don't frequent a city, people are always really confused about like a cell phone, why people experiencing homelessness have cell phones. Like, I didn't realize that. And a, a lot of the numbers say between 70 and 80% um, have cell phones. But one of, the, one of the biggest challenges that I want to highlight as well is theft and the trading of items is, a, is another big part of the community. And I've met people who have had 20 different cell phones in one given month 
because they fall asleep and someone swipes it from their pocket. And so providing the ability to charge cell phones and, and have a stable connection is really the first step. And I think the next step is being able to provide security in a secure place that people uh, feel comfortable in their belongings. But yeah, it's, it's a very overlooked area. And another thing to highlight as well, we're very realistic in our approach. Like we don't give away our backpacks thinking that we're ending homelessness. We're very realistic that our product is a way to supplement a lot of the great work that other organizations are doing. But I think what we've started to really carve out our niche is working with organizations that provide extended services or programs like transitional housing or navigation center, recognizing that these facilities don't have enough capacity for to meet the need. And so we found a good niche of providing people that can't get into those programs or frankly don't feel safe, maybe entering a shelter. Those are the populations we try to target to give our pack. Okay, so you mentioned theft in here of the cell phones. Out of the 500 first group that you gave away, how many of those are still with the original owners? How is theft treating the backpack itself? Yeah, it's a great question, Jared. San Francisco is, is a very interesting and unique place to address homelessness. It's very dense. The city is geographically very small. And just to put in perspective, like San Francisco has about 220 people experiencing homelessness per square mile, uh, whereas LA has only about 130 per square mile, despite having roughly 50,000 more people unhoused. So it's very dense in San Francisco. And because of that, we've dealt with an enormous amount of theft. So we estimate about 50% of our original people that we've distributed still have the packs and we're able to still reconnect with. Of course, the goal is to reach 100%, but we've done a few pilots in some other cities like San Luis Obispo, Redwood City, Berkeley, and these are more suburban, sort of rural types of environments that people are experiencing homelessness. And we found much greater success in those areas, which has caused us to, in 2024, look to expand to about 15 different cities. So San Francisco is, it's been a challenge, but of course, that's where I was based. And that was the first market that we tested. Yeah, that makes sense. So of those 15 cities on the expansion, how are they all in California and are any in the East Bay since we're an East Bay focused podcast? Yeah, funny enough. So they're all in California, but funny enough, we're, I was just triple checking the map to, to make sure, and we're kind of tiptoeing around Contra Casa. So we're going to be in Berkeley. We're going to be in Alameda. We're currently working with the Veterans Department in Solano County. So we're going to be hopefully supplying about 100 packs for their entire unhoused veteran population next year. We recently received a grant. Um, from the Margaret B. Lard Community Foundation uh, to support 50 packs in Fairfield. And so we're kind of tiptoeing around Contra Costa, but we're also going to be in Southern California. I'm actually going to Santa Barbara today, Ventura. So we're going to be in some kind of smaller regions to test out those areas. Well, we have listeners and uh, other guests that have come on from Solano and Alameda. And I don't think we've had anybody from Berkeley yet, but 
will hit them up in the right time. So you are covering a good portion of the East Bay and a good portion of California that way. And I know you're a small organization. Tell me more. Is the organization just Zach or who else is helping you? So it's definitely not just Zach. I would say the only person that's thinking about this 24-7 is me, but rightfully so, given I founded it. So I guess that makes sense. But we do have a great board. So I we a big priority of mine early on was to build a, a very diverse board of people from medical field, from finance to government, and really have an array of, of expertise on our board. And they've been tremendous to help us get to this point. And then we also have an internship program. So we have an internship program that's had over 200 interns come through the program from something like 20 different states, although now we're mostly focused on interns in California. But yeah, right now we have about 25 interns from Berkeley, UCLA, all up and down the coast. And they do a variety of things for us. They have set up a lot of the contracts that we're going to be doing next year. They've been big on the fundraising. They run our social medias. So it's really been It's really been exciting to have a volunteer-based, mostly student-led organization, recognizing that's not going to be uh, sustainable forever, but it's been a great start for us. As That's amazing. Just I've managed interns before for organizations I've worked with, and people forget managing four or five interns becomes almost like a full-time job. And you got to get them all up to speed. They don't have the the history, the background, right? But you guys are doing it to innovate and you're doing it part-time, right? Because you're in school yourself still. I think that's worth noting. Tell a little bit about what you're studying now. Yeah, so my, my undergrad was at University of San Francisco in marketing and international business. Started the organization, built that throughout undergrad. And so this past May, I finished school at USF and it was kind of at a, a crossroads of what I wanted to, to do. And I had a few kind of corporate job offers that I was considering, sort of felt like I would have been a sellout if I would have taken those, given that we had a lot of momentum for the homework project. And then I was also considering grad school, so ultimately decided to moved down to LA and I'm doing a master's of urban planning and economic development at UCLA. And it's been a bit of a shift from undergrad, kind of feel like the dumbest person in the room, but that's usually a good thing. (laughs) And so, yeah, a lot of my focus in the program has been on homelessness and it's, it's nice to be able to kind of translate the work that I've done into the program and still collaborate with others and learn more. So I finished finished that program in June of 2025 and hoping to be all in full-time for home work. That's great. And so how many people have you served uh, with the Backpack program to date? Yeah, so we launched October 1st, 2022. Um, We distributed about 130 from... October 1st to the end of last year. January, we were geared up, ready to distribute the remaining roughly 370 packs that we had on hand. And we started getting emails and we would 
reconnect with the people that we'd given a pack to. And we realized that our zippers were breaking. And I don't know if you've ever had a backpack with a broken zipper, but you basically don't have a backpack. (laughs) And so we spent about four months working with a sewing company, fixed the zippers, input some Velcro and some buttons. And that was a huge pause uh, on our distribution efforts. So we picked back up in June. June through August, we distributed the remaining roughly 350 packs that we had made. And then August, really up until this point, has been fundraising, establishing the contracts, and and prepping for next year, which we're aiming to distribute 1,500. So 1,500 through 15 cities, 15 targeted zones. How And how much was it a backpack again? Yeah, so each pack costs about $100 to make equipped with all the belongings and deliver. So that's from the point of manufacturing to the end user is about $100. So to hit your your minimum goal next year just for the packs, and that's nothing for the operation itself, you need at least $150,000, which is significant, but it's also not a, a million dollars. But a million dollars would serve a lot more. And I know there's overhead for an organization. There's maintaining the website, there's the social media, there's the time and energy into the contracts, legal fees, tax fees, et cetera, that has to be covered. So how's the fundraising going? Where do you see, and is most of your money coming from individuals, foundations? Yeah, so so we break down our fundraising probably like most organizations, but we articulate it into three main areas. So individual relations, corporate relations, and then government affairs. So our first, really our first and second year, 2021 and 2022, was like 95% individual donors. So we put a lot of effort into social media, reaching out to different networks to get donations. This year, we've shifted our focus to more corporate relations, dabbling a little bit into government affairs. So a lot of community foundations, which have allowed us to expand to different cities, some family foundations, the list goes on. And then next year, we're really looking to establish good partnerships with local governments, board of supervisors, health agencies that can help fund and and partner with us to distribute our PACs. So it's kind of an array but I'm sure as most nonprofits would tell you, the best way to, to support an organization is to have a, a good balance of all three of those areas. Yeah, and I, I like that it's a very focused goal, a very specific ask in terms of fundraising, and you can see how it helps. Like, hey, you want us to expand into your community? This is what we need. It's very just tangible and measured items. Yeah, and we... Moving forward, right now we deliver the packs at cost. So when we apply for grants or get funding, we're delivering one for every $100 we receive, even though that's what they cost us. But what we're planning moving forward is to factor in some additional margin to be able to cover overhead. And so naturally, as we produce more and hopefully get some of the included items donated, the backpack costs go down, then we're able to have 10 to $15 per unit that's able to support our team and operations. 
That makes that makes sense. And that's good that you're able to do it now without putting that operation stuff in here. If you talk about some of the other programs that Home More is involved in on top of the makeshift traveler backpack that you've been talking about. Yeah, so we have kind of a, a smaller program, which is our education program. And then we have more of a long-term program that's a transitional housing program. So our education program is broken down into a few different projects. One is our what's called our Learn More blog. So we have a team of interns, about five to six interns, that research, create articles. We put out about two to three articles each week to just share various news topics about homelessness throughout the world, really. We've done articles throughout the world. And the education program is really just to help us become more acclimated with the community that we're serving. And it's also helped boost some traffic to the organization. We're also really excited. Next year, we're going to be releasing a children's book, which is going to be about a hermit crab without a shell. So we're really excited about that. And then we also do some educational short films with our media team. And then long-term, our goal is to launch a transitional housing program. So this initially was going to be sort of a campus-like environment where people experiencing homelessness could go for one to two years to get access to, to healthcare, education, and employment services, and ultimately transition to their own permanent housing. We've since shifted that focus a little bit from a campus-like environment to something more manageable, such as tiny homes or sort of like a dorm environment. So this is still a very conceptual program. I was reading today in the LA Times and they were looking at, it's December 1st when we're recording this. I know it'll come out in about a month, this episode. And the article was talking about homelessness for college students in LA uh, or across the entire state. And it was focused on Humboldt University, which has uh, a big issue going on in a parking lot right now. There was a number of students, over a hundred that had set up tents and makeshift housing in one of the school parking lots. And they were people who were paying tuition, who were paying to go to school, doing their books, doing their homework. And they set up a camp and they were all building a, a very solid community, at least based on the article. They were all helping each other. They were living safely, but they didn't, they couldn't afford both tuition, food, and housing in the area. And then the article looked at the stats across the state. And I think 20% of our college students, 10% of our state universities, and one out of 20 of our UC students are are all homelessness or, or living in temporary housing. So when you talk about transitional housing, that just stands out to me. I also know, again, you're a student, uh, so I don't know if you're seeing that. Yeah, admittedly, I was just having this conversation the other day with a collective here in, in Los Angeles that focuses solely on uh, homeless youth. And admittedly, a lot of our work has been in the, the unsheltered, uh, section of the homeless population, which of course basically just means people that you would see on the streets. And a lot of the homeless youth are, just as you just mentioned, living in cars, they're couch surfing, 
There's maybe even some people that consider themselves homeless despite living with family, right? Maybe abusive parents. A big portion of the homeless youth are a part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so it, it's a really, it, it's a hard group to measure, but there, there's a lot of great organizations that, that are doing great work for them. Great. And how do people learn more about you and your organization and connect further? Yeah. So you can follow us on main social medias, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, et cetera. It's just the Home War Project. And then you can also connect with us online. Our website's thehomewarproject.org. And I'm always really big on contributions and support doesn't have to be financial. If you want to send us an email, if you have a suggestion or maybe a disagreement about how we approach one of our programs, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. So I really appreciate it. And I guess the last thing I would say is the homeless population is, I think, one of the most misunderstood communities probably in society. And I can assure people that after doing this work for over a year now, everyone has their own unique story and ultimately a series of events that led them to this experience. But they're people first. And so take a moment to connect with someone and learn their story. And I would encourage people to learn more about them, connect. And if you could donate in this holiday season so they can kick off their 2024 program, that would be great. Leave some social media comments. Feel free to share this. And hopefully before you know it, they will be going throughout California and throughout the West Coast even further. So thanks for joining us today, Zach, and happy holidays, everyone. Please hit subscribe so you get the weekly updates of when we release the next episode. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Capstone Government Affairs and Economic Development, a firm where I serve as managing partner. For more information, check us out at www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government. Check out the show notes and for a full transcript, visit our website, www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government or you can find me, your host, Jared Ash.